see what God has to say for us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. It shows us who you are and what you've done and how we are to respond in faith to you. We ask now as we walk through this passage of scripture that you would help me to preach and proclaim with clarity and with boldness. I pray for everyone who's here in person or online that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is humble to understand and receive your word and to respond in obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. March 30th, 1867, about 160 years ago, Secretary of State William Seward finalized the purchase of Alaska from Russia for a whopping two cents per acre. Now, it's still a sizable investment. It cost about $7 million. And this ought to be an encouragement to you that media spin is nothing new. It was immediately ridiculed as Seward's folly. And why are we spending all this money on Seward's icebox and then President Andrew Johnson's polar bear garden? It was not a, not a popular purchase at the time, although an incredibly wise investment that Secretary of State State Seward led us into. In the 160 years since that purchase, we've discovered immense natural resources, gold, oil, other things like that, not to mention the massive strategic value of the access it gives us to Asia. And I do think sometimes Russia must look back on that and wonder, what in the world were we thinking? They clearly had some sort of need for the money, or they thought they did at the time, but they look back now and wonder, how could we be so short-sighted? How could we miss this? And I think in, in Galatians 6, what Paul gives us this morning is a, is a similar message to that. He's, Paul's saying, look, don't be short-sighted and fail to invest in God's kingdom because something else feels more urgent at the time. Don't make the same mistake that the Russians made 160 years ago. If you were to summarize what Paul says in this passage and what hopefully we'll tease out in the next 40 minutes in one sentence, it would be this. Kingdom investments are always worth it. Kingdom investments are always worth it. And we'll see that in three basic points. The first is a direct command we'll receive from Paul and then an underlying principle that explains the command and then an encouraging word to continue in obedience. You think through the track, a direct command, an underlying principle, and an encouraging word to carry. So let's start with the direct command. If you've got God's word open, and I hope that you do, look back at Galatians chapter six and verse six. Here's where we read this direct command. We read in verse six. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. That's a fairly straightforward, direct command, and it's not in reference merely to me as the main teacher of receiving what is shared by all of you, uh, all the good things. No, it's seeing more broadly the entire church ministry as an embassy of God's kingdom. What's, that? What's an embassy? It's, it's like a kingdom outpost, it's saying we're in a different country, we feel like exiles in America. And there's a a kingdom outpost, a gospel embassy here 
that is to be invested in for the good of all. Now, you remember the context initially, the book of Galatia, there are bad teachers all over the place, right? That's one of the main reasons that Paul's writing is to correct false teaching about how one can be saved, how they can have a right relationship with God. And so it's as if Paul was saying that the gospel is always pure water, but it comes to your house through pipes. And if the pipes aren't cared for, you'll get hard water and eventually undrinkable water that will kill you. And Paul's reminding us to invest in the infrastructure of God's church. You see, allowing some pastors to focus full-time on God's word allows for better preaching, which benefits you and the entire community around us by establishing and investing in these gospel embassies. Now, as soon as you hear that, you might be wondering, Well, Justin, isn't that convenient, rather self-serving for you to deliver this message this morning? And uh, if you're new with us, let let me just remind you, and if you've you've been here for a while, you know this, we practice expositional preaching to help us stay away from pastoral hobby horses, where we're going to walk through a book of the Bible verse by verse so that God can set the agenda for what we speak to, not me, right? And, um, and, And that's really good. It's important that we do that. What that also means is that a a message about generosity and investing in God's kingdom is not being brought because there's some kind of a budgetary crisis on our hands. No, it protects against that as well. In fact, this year we're we're right on track budgetarily. and, And more than being on track this year, as someone who's been here for a while, I've seen this church model radical, sacrificial generosity for decades And there is all sorts of ministry that's enabled both in this church and in this community and around the world because so many have continued to make kingdom investments knowing that they are always worth it. So if giving isn't my hobby horse and we're not in a budgetary crisis, then why is this passage here? I've already knocked out the two main things that you were thinking of as the reason, so what's what's it really doing here? And let me remind you of the overall scope of Galatians, and it'll make sense. I hope to say this enough times that by the time we finish the book of Galatians, you'll see the outline clearly. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul, remember? Not yet? Okay, got a few more to go. He defines the gospel. And then 3 and 4, he defends the gospel. And chapters 5 and 6, he's going to tell us how to live out the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, let me just say very clearly, I don't want your money and God doesn't need it. What you need to hear most clearly is where Paul defines the gospel in Galatians 1 and 2. He would say that four statements, God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. That's the message you need to hear this morning, that God is holy, he created the entire universe out of nothing, he is morally perfect. There can be no moral imperfections in his presence. He's holy, and we are not. None of us are. Some of us might look more moral. Some of us might look less moral. None of us are perfect. None of us are holy. And because none of us are holy, none of us can be with God. God is holy. We are not. But praise God, there's good news that Jesus came to this earth and lived the perfect life that we didn't live and couldn't live, and he died the gruesome death 
that our sins deserve so that our lack of holiness would not continue to separate us from God, but that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead would save us from our sins, bring us back into relationship with God. And after that great gift that we'd received of his grace, that God is holy and we are not, Jesus saves, and Christ becomes our life, we then come to chapters five and six where Paul unpacks, here's how you live out the gospel. Here's how Christ is your life. That's what we come to here, and I'll review with you the last couple of weeks of what it looks like for Christ to be your life. Starting at the beginning of chapter five, it's that we love one another, Galatians 5.14, the whole law is contained in this one command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself because Jesus loved you as he loved himself. He gave up his life for you. And then the next section is that we walk by the Spirit and we crucify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.26, because Jesus was crucified. And his Life in you empowers you to crucify the desires of the flesh. And last week, Pastor Eddie told us that to live out the gospel means that we bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 1 through 5, because Jesus bore our burdens on the cross. And this week, as we continue to unpack what it looks like to live out the gospel, we see that Jesus, having all the riches of heaven, gave them up. He impoverished himself so that others could become rich, that to live out the gospel, we share our financial resources with others so that the gospel can be proclaimed and they may share the spiritual riches that we have in Christ if we are truly in Christ. That's why we're here in Galatians 6. It's important to see the big picture of it so that we understand how is this building? How is Paul defining the gospel, defending the gospel, and then showing us how to live out the gospel? You see, sometimes we get a little skittish talking about money in church, but the reality is that Jesus spoke on money more than he did heaven or hell. Because talking about heaven and hell could feel a little bit abstract, a little bit distant. It's further away than the Colts-Buccaneers game this afternoon and harder to focus on. So he puts it on the ground in rubber meeting the road language where he says, hey, what you do with your money reveals where your heart is actually at, what you're actually believing more than just what your words are saying. See what he says in Matthew 6 here. Jesus would write, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says money is a primary indicator of where your heart really is. And of course, giving it up is painful and difficult and not easy, but it's also liberating. I think of it a bit like this. Last, last summer, uh, I went on a 30-day fast from my iPhone. I tell you, at the beginning of it, that was really, really difficult. I'm sitting in the driveway, kids are riding their bikes, I keep reaching into my pocket even though I know the thing's not there. Like, where's it at? I need it, I want it. It's, it's difficult to set it aside. But it didn't take too long until I started to realize there is all kinds of joy in hanging out with my wife and my kids and fun things happening in front of us that as I can set aside my phone, I actually find liberation to great joy that's right at my fingertips right now. 
And Jesus would say the same principle is true of our money. It's difficult to invest in eternity at times, but there's great joy in doing that, and it's at our fingertips if we would merely ask for his help and take the step of investing there in eternity. Kingdom investments are always worth it. And this, this letter to the Galatians, it's, it's written in the context of giving to our local churches. I, I don't say that to say we shouldn't give to other ministries. In fact, it's good to give to other ministries, whether they be radio ministries or online, you know, YouTube ministries or whatever it may be. But there's only one institution in the entire world that carries God's promise of unending blessing. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16? See it on the screen? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No other ministry, no other institution carries a word of blessing and promise like that. So it's not because I draw a paycheck from the church that I would say invest most heavily in the church. It's merely a principle of return on investment. Invest most heavily where God has promised his blessings most abundantly. That should be common sense. And it's because of that that I pray that our church and other churches would take a broader view of these gospel embassies, that it's not merely about building a kingdom here, but seeing the need to establish more gospel embassies around the world. You see, many of you remember when that embassy closed in Kabul not so long ago. Some of you can remember further back to the one in Saigon. And you know that when that embassy closed or when they were closing, it meant certain death for some. And a lack of gospel embassies, local churches around the globe will mean certain death for others because they will not receive the pure water of the gospel. That's why every single time you give to Parkside Bible Church, 20% of it goes straight to missions. About 20%. About one out of every $5 so that we can give ourselves as a church to establishing not just this church but other churches globally. You know, I was talking to a couple of guys in the last few months and, uh, and one of the things they kept saying is, hey, our churches are, are, are growing. We're, we're excited about this. We're, we're moving. We're, we're up to almost 10% going to missions. And I looked at him, I was excited for him, and I was just reminded again of the faithful giving of God's people here at Parkside that enables us to give so generously to the work of the gospel internationally. But not just internationally, this is why a big part of the Christmas offering is going to church planting here in Indianapolis to establish more gospel embassies. I recently saw a study that said the need for church planting in Indianapolis is greater than the need in Los Angeles, New York City, or Dallas. There's a major need here. And that's why we're going to continue to invest here. You know, I, I look around at, at this auditorium, and guys, I, I would love to be able to update some of our 40-year-old carpet or get some chairs instead of pews or some new paint, things like that. And, and I hope that we can get there before too long, but we're not going to do it at the expense of investing in other gospel embassies. We're not going to do that because kingdom investments are always worth it. That's the first point. There's a direct command that Paul gives us, and then he starts to move into an underlying principle. So this is the, this is the second point, the underlying principle I'd invite you to look back at your copy of the scriptures, and we see this in verses 7 and 8. 
We read, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's the obvious agricultural language of of sowing and reaping. And of course, harvest time is wonderful, right? There's my daughters. They got to ride on a combine with their great-grandpa a couple of years ago, and they love harvest time. We're driving down the road, and there's a combine, there's a combine. They're spotting them all over the place. We love to get that fresh, sweet corn on the cob. Stop at that roadside stand, man, there's nothing like it. Put some butter, some salt, some pepper on there. I love harvest time. I love the fresh honey crisp apples. I'm sure you've got your favorite things at harvest time as well. But often, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we can neglect sowing season and merely long for reaping season, long for the harvest time. And I know that that many of you could be hearing a a call to give and thinking something like, Justin, I'm, I'm not really in a place that I can give right now. Or, I know you're basically right about the need, but I'll think about this a little later. Maybe you're thinking, Justin, I know there's somebody else out there with more disposable income than me, and maybe they can meet the need. Maybe you're thinking, Justin, if only you knew how stressful the money conversation was at our house, then you would understand. Friends, the reason I mention each of those things is because those are thoughts I've had. I understand how difficult it can be to think about what are the practical steps I need to take to be able to invest more heavily in eternity. I get that. And rather than you hear my commentary on what you need to do or not do, can I just take you back to the scriptures? Let's take you back and see what does God say? He says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. You will reap what you sow. The reality is this. We're always sowing to something. We're always sowing to something. We're sowing to our mortgage. We're sowing to monthly rent. We're sowing to student loans or to our retirement or to car insurance. And we sow to those things rightly because we believe the investment is worth it. That's why you sow to those things, because it's worth it to invest in them. And there are other less essential things that we sow to. We sow to Starbucks. We sow to our favorite steakhouse. We sow to the newest tech toys or to home renovations. And we sow to them, again, because we believe the, the investment is worth it, right? So let me ask you this morning, then, is sowing to eternity and it's specifically to the local church, is that an essential, non-negotiable component of your sowing? And if it's not, let me remind you that Paul has some pretty sobering words of warning. He says in verse 7, do not be deceived. That phrase, do not be deceived, could be somewhat open to interpretation. Well, Paul, what kind of deception do you mean? There's various levels of deception. The other places in the New Testament where Paul uses that phrase, don't be deceived, one of them is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 
can jot that down. If you're taking notes, we won't turn there. The other is 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and 34. Both of them imply don't be deceived about your eternal destiny. Paul's saying sowing to the flesh and not to God's kingdom will reap corruption both in this life and the next life. So let me be clear, and and please don't mishear me on this point. It's impossible to give your way into heaven. That's neither what I'm saying nor what Paul was saying. But it's also impossible to truly believe the gospel and not invest your treasure in eternity. Let me say that again. It's impossible to give your way into heaven. But it's also impossible to truly believe the gospel and not invest your treasure in eternity. John Piper would say it this way. He would say, I am astonished at people who say they believe in God, but live as if happiness is found by giving him 2% of their attention. Maybe sometimes less. Friend, if this feels a bit heavy-handed to you, Let me remind you that I'm merely explaining what Paul has said here in Galatians 6. And we already saw this same principle on Jesus' own words in Matthew 6. Had I kept going, I would have come to the section where he says, you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve both God and money. doesn't say you can't have both God and money, but you can't serve both of them. Or we could go to 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Guys, this is basic Christianity. Taking up your cross and following Jesus isn't reserved for the spiritually elite. No, this is what it means to be a Christian, among other things. And the reality is this, and you know this, you know this well, Sowing to eternity is a spiritual discipline, and like all disciplines, it takes a lot of effort to develop good habits. That's true of all disciplines, we know that, and even more so in spiritual disciplines where there's spiritual warfare at stake, not just my own selfishness. So you might be listening and saying, Justin, I know that you're basically right, and it's difficult to think about what I'm supposed to do here. I desire to make kingdom investments, but I see the pain of sowing more clearly than I see the joy of reaping. We've all been there at one point in time or another, where we see the pain of sowing more clearly than we see the joy of reaping. So I want you to think about investments in kingdom, in the kingdom, a bit like my old strawberry patch. Who's ever had a strawberry patch? Who's ever planted one of those? Okay, so if you haven't, here's how it works. You, you, well, actually, I don't know how... Here's how it worked for us. Maybe you're a better farmer than me, and you know how. We ordered it online, and they ship us this little packet, and we plant the thing. And these strawberry plants start to bear fruit. And what they do is, as they start to come up, each plant starts to shoot off these own, like, runners off of it. They latch on, and it starts to bear fruit. And the new one starts to bear fruit, and then it shoots off another runner. And these things... What started out as a little investment just expands like wildfire, and there's a harvest being reaped all over the place. 
We decided a few years into our gardening adventures that gardening wasn't for us, at least not while the kids were so small and we were not weeding this thing very appropriately and it was a hassle. So we, so we decided eventually, hey, we're, gonna, we're just going to get rid of the garden. We're going to plant some grass seed. We'll come back to gardening when we're empty nesters. <laughs> That's what we tell ourselves. Probably never happened, but whatever the case. So I take a mower to the garden. I'm just going to mow this bad boy down, buy some grass seed, sow it in there. And uh, you know what came back the next year? Strawberries. Strawberries. You can't stop these suckers. (laughs) Once you make an investment in strawberries, you're going to be reaping strawberries for a long time. And investments in God's kingdom are a bit like that. You make that investment and he will bear fruit with it for a long, long time. And it's going to keep coming back, and that investment's going to sprout and go somewhere else. And you can have people come in that try to kill it. You can have government step in and try to stop it. But God is better than any strawberry patch and will bring fruit that lasts more than any patch. It'll be sending out runners to find other spots to plant itself, to sprout, and to bring a harvest that is plentiful. The first fruit that we ought to be looking for is a fruit in our own heart where every single time I invest in God's kingdom, in essence, what I'm saying is, Jesus, you are better than this money. You are better than what this money can provide. The security it can provide, the house it could provide, the car, the vacation, the gifts. Jesus, you are better. It's an act of worship. And so it's an internal fruit in my heart that liberates me from being bound to my money. I'm reaping that internally. And if if you're like our family and you use automated giving, sometimes it can be a little bit out of sight, out of mind. I just set that baby up and it just makes the transaction every two weeks. I'd encourage you to set a reminder on Saturday night to see that and stop and pause and pray, Jesus, as this transaction is made, I confess to you that you are better than money And I'm going to ask you to liberate my heart from the love of money to see that you're better than anything else in this world. If you've got kids, as we come up on the Christmas offering, I'd invite you to invite them into the process, to pray over the projects, to learn about the projects, to consider what they could give up for the Christmas offering so that the the harvest that is reaped from your investment in eternity is not limited to your generation, but for your kids to see that normal Christianity is investing in the kingdom of God because kingdom investments are always worth it. But there's also an external fruit. It's not just fruit in my own heart that I'm liberated from the love of money by giving. There's an external fruit. Many of you were here 30, 40 years ago when Bethesda started planting churches all around Indianapolis. A couple of months ago, I was, I was meeting with a pastor who'd been at a church that was near the point of death, and one of the churches we had planted 35, 40 years ago, College Park Church, had seen this other struggling church in the Ben Davis area. And they'd seen the church was about to close its doors. They said, no, a gospel embassy in that community is worth it. It's valuable. We're going to invest there. Strawberry seed runs out, plants, sends another runner out. And they sent people and money, and a pastor there, and that church is now thriving. And I got to meet with that pastor, and he said, brother, I'm so 
blessed, so encouraged, so glad for this community that a long time ago, somebody made an investment in planting a different church that could revitalize this church. Of the 12 or so churches that were planted and revitalized around Indianapolis by Bethesda Baptist Church from about 1985 to about 1995, of those 12 churches, this weekend alone, they'll serve about 10,000 attendees. In the last three years, they've seen over 350 people come to faith and get baptized. And in this calendar year alone, those churches will see over $2 million sent internationally to establish more gospel embassies, more local churches. Amen. Praise God for his people investing in the work of the gospel and understanding that kingdom investments are always worth it. I love it when God pulls back the curtain and lets us see just a little bit of what he's doing. Don't you love that? But there's other times that we don't get to see what he's doing. And we wonder, and we're investing in faith, hoping that God will use it. I'm reminded of the story of Luke Short. I doubt any of you know him. He lived in the 17th century. And like most people in the 17th century, Luke was a farmer. And unlike most people in the 17th century, Luke was not a Christian. Luke's plowing his field at age 100. I hope I'm alive and kicking like that when I'm 100. Was not a believer. And Luke remembered at age 100 a sermon he'd heard 85 years prior. The Holy Spirit brought it to mind. He wrote in his journal that he recalled these specific words that the pastor had said when he was 15 years old. And as he was plowing his field, he was convicted of his need of a Savior, that God is holy, he was not, and he needed Jesus to save him. And he cried out asking God to save him. Now, the people who had invested in that gospel embassy, that local church, most of them were dead and gone by the time that that fruit was realized. But the kingdom investment was still worth it. So sometimes, like the landscape around Indianapolis, we can see the fruit of our investments. And sometimes, like in the story of Luke Short and his conversion, we don't get to see the fruit of it. But in every case, the kingdom investment is always worth it. Now, if you're in my generation and you're, you're thinking about this, you're saying, Justin, I'm not in my peak earning years yet. We got little kids. We're still paying off student loans. How exactly does this work? I just invite you to come and talk to me, not because I've got all the answers or I can tell you exactly what to do, but I got a lot of gray-haired friends who've been at this for a long time, who have seen God's faithfulness for years and for decades, and they'd love to sit down and talk to you and help you to see, here's how you can make this investment in eternity, even while finances are really tight. These are brothers and sisters that know that kingdom investments are always worth it. But whatever your age, whether young or old, I know a few things. I know that some of us needed to hear the sober warning from Paul. I know that some of us needed to be reminded that kingdom investments are always worth it. But there's a third group as well. Some of you have been investing faithfully for years or possibly even for decades. You might be on the older end of that spectrum, or you might be younger and you're investing even when things seem super tight. 
But regardless of your age, you've seen the joys of radical, sacrificial giving. But as you go, sometimes you get a little discouraged. You get tired. You wonder if it's worth it to keep going. And Paul has you in mind when he writes these last two verses of encouragement. Look back at verses 9 and 10. Here we come to our third point, the encouraging word. Paul writes, verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I see three encouraging words in those two short verses. Here's the first encouragement. Encouragement number one. Focus on the opportunities God has given you. Focus on the opportunities God has given you. He says, as we have opportunity. Now, that involves two things. It involves how much you give and to what ministries you give. In other words, you're going to have opportunities in your life where you can give more, and you're going to have seasons where your opportunity is to give a little less. So as you have opportunity, give what you can. And there will be seasons where you see more, op- more ministries you want to give to, and there might be seasons where you see less that you want to give to. But as you have opportunity, give as generously as you can. And here's why this is an encouragement It means that God is not expecting you to, or your church to solve every crisis, feed every orphan, support every missionary, and evangelize every single tribe. If he was expecting you to do that, it would be an unbearable load of guilt. Where you think the whole thing was riding on you, there was no larger body of Christ to meet needs, and it's incredibly liberating and encouraging for us to read as you have opportunity. Focus on what God has given you. Be faithful with what has been entrusted to you. That's an encouragement. We start right in front of us. I mentioned giving to our local church, but there's also the aspect where he says uh, to the household of faith and then moving out from there. So as there are needs within the body, we meet those needs. It's not to the exclusion of needs outside of our body, but it's recognizing the priority that God has placed here. This is the first encouragement. Focus on the opportunities God has given you. The second encouragement, focus on the security of the harvest. Focus on the security of the harvest. Paul writes, we will reap. Emphatic, we will reap. Not we hope to reap, not reaping is probable, not we might reap. We will reap. In other words, these kingdom seeds can't be flooded out by heavy rains in April. You guys remember two years ago, that was a major problem. Couldn't get seed in the ground because it rained so much. It was getting flooded out. This harvest can't be ruined by too much water. No, it's certain because the one who guarantees it is certain. And so if you, with your life and with your money, have continually said, Jesus, you are better than anything this life can offer, then you will reap the harvest of eternity with Jesus. And the fruit won't be limited to you. 
you might see this fruit in your lifetime where you could see dozens of churches around Indianapolis and hundreds of conversions and millions of dollars being sent to the work of the gospel internationally. Or you might not see the fruit. It might be like Luke Short's conversion. But either way, focus on the security of the harvest. That will encourage you that your investment is not in vain, it's not wasted, that kingdom investments are always worth it. Here's the third encouragement. Focus on moving from duty to delight. Focus on moving from duty to delight. Verse nine, Paul writes, and let us not grow weary of doing good. Let us not grow weary. Do you know what I grow weary of? I grow weary of duties. I don't grow weary of delights. To place this in the last 48 hours, my kids asked me, Dad, how many vegetables do I have to eat before I can have dessert? <laughs> they grow weary of the duty of vegetables. They don't grow weary of the delight of apple pie with vanilla ice cream. So how do you not grow weary in doing good? You move from duty to delight. God says in 2 Corinthians 9 that he loves a cheerful giver. I can tell you, I am a cheerful dessert eater. But sometimes giving feels more like eating my vegetables. Maybe you can understand. So the, the obvious question is, Justin, I get the analogy, but how exactly do I move from duty to delight? The key is to fix our eyes on Jesus. It comes back to the gospel every single time. This is what Paul would say to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8. We'll get there in a second on the screen, but not yet. He says, remember the riches that Jesus had in heaven. He gave up all of his riches. He impoverished himself so that you could take your riches and give them so that others could become spiritually rich. That's how I move from duty to delight. If it's merely me white-knuckling it, trying harder, thinking through ways to be more disciplined, beating myself down, it's not going to work. You need a power that's greater than yourself to transform your heart and help you to see that giving is more than a duty. It is a delight to see this. It's a joy. What do we read about Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God? He didn't deny the pain. He didn't deny the difficulty. He didn't deny the shame. He just saw that there was a better joy on the other side. That's how it works for us. Friends, your action point this morning might be committing to an automated kingdom investment every two weeks. That might be your action point. It might be increasing the amount of your kingdom investment. It might be prayerfully considering how to give to the Christmas offering. Or maybe your action point is to recognize I've simply allowed my kingdom investments to become a duty and not a delight. I had to fix my eyes on Jesus and find joy in the opportunity to invest in eternity. Might be any of those. But whatever it is, let me warn you up front. This conversation will be hard. I know that from personal experience. There's a fierce argument inside your own soul, inside my own soul. Can I really afford to do this? There might be a fierce argument with your spouse awaiting on the other side. Can we really afford to do this? You might be thinking right now, they'd better not bring it up over lunch. I've been there. I get it. I get it. 
But wherever that conversation lies in your soul and in your family, the answer for every single one of us is the same. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look up at the screen. Here's how we'll see this in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul would write, I say this not as a command. It's not a duty, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine, that it's a delight to show love. Here's this awesome verse that I referenced a second ago. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the motivation for kingdom investments. Paul goes on, and in this matter, I give you my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Do you see that liberation there? There's a readiness according to, here's what you have, as you have opportunity, out of joy. Let it be a delight. The readiness is there, but how do we finish the work? By seeing the grace of Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So we're gonna take a minute here, after I pray for silence, and then we'll take communion if you're a Christian. And as we go to that period of silence there, I just want you to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you. How by his riches turned to poverty, you became rich so that you may invest in others to establish gospel embassies that they, others may hear the transforming work of Jesus Christ and come to know him as their savior. And then as you're ready, take communion, and then we'll sing and close out our time of worship. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your love reached down, extended to us, that you didn't hoard or withhold your riches in eternity, but gave them so that we could be rich in you. We pray by your grace that you would free us from the love of money, free us to pursue you with everything we've got, to take up our lives, our crosses daily, and follow you. We know we can't do this on our own. It's not a, a white-knuckle sort of strength we can muster up. But by your grace, it is possible. And we ask that you would do a mighty work in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name.